You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Well, most of you have heard the Lord's Prayer. Some of you perhaps even know it by memory. Others of you perhaps have not heard of it. You were not raised in the church. But it is surprising to me even how a number of my friends who are not Christians, not raised in the church, perhaps their experience at funerals or their chance kind of being around it, maybe exposed to it as a source of literature, have nevertheless heard this prayer. It comes in the context of the very book we've been studying, the book of Matthew. It's also repeating the book of Luke. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have who has we forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's beautiful, if not poetic. It's been put to music and sung. It's been taught to children from the earliest of ages. Some adults have even asked pastors like yourself, like myself, to come alongside them at their deathbed in their final minutes of life and ask to have read over them this prayer. It speaks of a heavenly Father, a divine kingdom, daily needs, and salvation from evil. What's not to love about it? And yet, it even talks about forgiveness. And who here today does not want to be forgiven? Who here does nay, today does not value the, the virtue of forgiveness particularly when it comes to receiving it. But it's that one verse in verse 12 that catches our toe as we walk through this prayer. It says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgiveness is a tricky thing. We understand it. We appreciate it. We value it. We are wanting it quickly to be offered to us But if a lot of us are honest, it comes much more slowly from us when we're offering it to others. It's not just offering it to strangers. I'm talking about the reality that at times we're slow to offer it to those whom we have known the best. Our husbands, our wives, our siblings, our roommates, our children, our closest of friends. Seemingly, we can be the most reticent to offer forgiveness to. Why is this? Why is forgiveness easier to ask for than it is to offer? Well, Jesus is going to answer this question for us tonight in Matthew chapter 18. If you have a copy of the Bible, let me ask you to turn in your Bible to Matthew 18. It's the first book in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's sort of to the last third of the Bible. We have copies for you for free if you want to have one yourself. 
at the Welcome Center. It's there for you. You're welcome to pull it up on your phone of your choosing or a tablet. I prefer and enjoy reading it in person, marking it up, seeing the context of what Jesus is describing here. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. It's been two weeks since we've been together in Matthew, two weeks since we've seen this, and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. For those of you who have been with us, this is a brief review. For those of you, this is your first time with us. It's your, your quick orientation and introduction. You see, in Matthew 18, the very beginning of the chapter, the disciples namely the 12 disciples, came to Jesus, and they're having this conversation about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus basically, like a, like a you know, time clock, turns it upside down and says, you're thinking wrongly about this. Greatest is actually who is the least. And then he turns the whole conversation into, by using a child, a conversation surprisingly about sin. You say, why is that so surprising? Well, it shouldn't be. After all, they're necessarily pre- uh, presenting themselves as in a proud way. Jesus is commending a humble way. And then he gets into a conversation about sin. And this conversation about sin continues. In verse 5, you'll, you'll notice how Jesus talks about it. In verse 6, rather, whoever caused one of these little ones, to, uh, little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to be a uh, millstone tossed around his neck. And he continues this conversation about sin. Verse 7, the temptations to sin. Talking about this issue of those who wander away and how to pursue them. And then we just looked at for a couple of weeks in verses 15 and 20. Look at what it says there, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, what should you do? Well, now we come to our text tonight. And Jesus is continuing his teaching fueled by a question from Peter. Look at it with me, just verses 21 and 22 to begin with. Then Peter came up and said to him, verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Tonight, friends, we're going to learn about the subject of forgiveness. No one less than Jesus himself is going to teach us, and it's important that we all listen to these lessons. There's going to be three lessons that we need to learn from Jesus about forgiveness. And the first one comes in that first text we just read, verses 21 and 22. Number one, we should forgive without keeping count. We should forgive without keeping count. Now, here's the context. Peter is having a conversation with Jesus, and he's kind of basically kind of caught the gist of what Jesus is about. Jesus is really radical in his generosity. He's radical with generosity of time. He's radical with generosity of patience. He's radical with generosity of himself, of forgiveness. He is clearly has seen, Peter's clearly has seen Jesus deal with the self-righteous Pharisees. And so Peter, on the heels of what he has said earlier, Jesus said earlier, says, how many times should we forgive? Now go back to verse 15 of chapter 18. Jesus is the one who says here, if your brother sins against you. Now you can see back in verse 21, when Peter says, Lord, how often will my brother against sin against me and I forgive him? It's a, it's a fair question. 
Peter's not new to this world. He understands how human interpersonal relationships work. He knows that people will not only disappoint you, they will sin against you over and over and over again. And just so you know, Peter is himself thinking he's being rather generous here. Why? Because in Judaic law, under the teaching of many, many of the rabbis, you were expected to forgive somebody not once, not twice, but three times. A common Judaic principle of forgiveness was that the expectation of forgiveness would be practiced by you three times. And so Peter's like, watch this, boys. I'm about to impress the master. So Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone who sins against us? He's like, let me go ahead and give the answer. He's going to be impressed with this one, right? You could just imagine this person in class, right? It's a Sunday school moment there, really going to impress the teacher. You're asking a question, and you're giving the answer. Only thing left is the gold star to be given here. Seven times? I mean, that sounds rather impressive. Seven times? Peter understands that retaliation is not the right path for a disciple. Forgiveness is a quality to be prized, but he recognizes, let's not get carried away. Forgiveness should be practiced in moderation, right? I mean, sure, forgiving the same person seven times would, would be enough, obviously, right? We, we don't want Christians to be treated like doormats, people who can just do to us whatever they want. We're not playing baseball here. We're going beyond. We're not looking for three strikes. We'll go up to seven. I mean, after all, if we offer the grace of forgiveness too many times, won't people just go on sinning against us? We don't want that. You don't want that. Seven times seems generous and respectable. Generous to them and self-respectable for myself. There are limits to the boundaries of this relationship. What does Jesus say in response? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times. It wasn't my answer, Peter. You're not quoting me there. But 77 times. Some of your translations might read 70 times seven. Now, for the mathematicians in the room, he is not saying 490 times. He is not in any way trying to say, I will see your number, Peter, and I'll raise it even higher to that level of generosity. He is speaking hyperbolically. He is speaking exaggeratively that there is no limit that you and I put on relationships with each other in our forgiveness. Why? Because to put a limit on it is to inevitably make yourself the judge of the other person. I'm keeping count. I might not have a pad in front of me, but I've got one in my mind. And my ledger says, you're getting close. And I've been watching and I've been monitoring. See, Paul understands later on in 1 Corinthians why this is going to be a problem. Paul understands in the nature of the church, the nature of Christian relationships It's so easy to keep a record of everybody else's wrongs. And so conveniently common to have missed the ledger in keeping a record of any of your own wrongs. 
right? I mean, how commonly can we see the mistakes of others, the sin of others, but so hard is it to see it ourselves in ourselves? Jesus would talk about this later in Matthew chapter 7, dealing with the two by four in our own eye, the log in our own eye, not dealing first with the speck in our brother's eye. You see, for Jesus, forgiveness was not to be petty or measured. It was to not to be maintained as your position in the seat of the judge. Forgiveness was to be wholehearted and constant. I'm just reading it to you what it says. The first lesson is that we should forgive without keeping count. Second lesson, Jesus, now with an elaborate parable to unpack it by illustration, the second lesson is we should forgive others with God's forgiveness as a reference. We should forgive others with God's forgiveness as a reference. Look with me at verse 23 and following. Jesus, continuing to teach here, says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Friends, I want to make sure we understand the parable here as Jesus intends us to unpack it. First of all, we need to recognize and distinguish between what is essential in this parable and directly connects to the lessons that Jesus is teaching us versus just being introduced for the parable for the sake of the parable itself. Uh, for example, when in the beginning part here of the relationship of the first person is in debt, and he talks about this idea that someone's in debt so great of a debt, he cannot repay it, that therefore he is going to sell all of his wife and children and collect all he owns until he pays it back. The point here is not to parallel like as if God's going to somehow create all of your family's indentured slaves. That's not the point. The point is Jesus is using first century understanding of what happened when you got in such a great debt you couldn't pay it back yourself. What I want you to notice is 
There is a striking similarity between both of these individuals. They're both servants. They both have the same master. They're both in debt. They both have the same response to the person to whom they owe their debt to. They posture themselves and make the same appeal. But this is where the paths diverge. For the response is completely different as to how they respond. You notice this first reference in verse 24 of 10,000 talents. In Old Testament times, a talent was a unit of weight anywhere between 58 to 80 pounds. In New Testament times, it was a financial reference. It could be the equivalent of about 20 years of payment for a worker. A common payment would be a, a denarius for a day of work. So just to put this into modern-day Florida, Miami context so you can feel like you get a sense of the gravity of the moment. Uh, later on this year, effective September 30th, 2021, the Florida minimum wage is being raised to an even $10 an hour. If you worked for $10 an hour for 40 hours a week for 52 weeks a year, you would make $20,800 a year, $20,800 a year. To give you a sense of understanding of what a single talent would be worth, it would be worth about $600,000. 10,000 talents is essentially like saying, hey, you owe 20, you make $20,000 a year, but you owe $6 billion. Six billion dollars is what you owe. What's the chance you're going to pay that back? Zero. Not in this lifetime, not in the next lifetime, not the next lifetime. No, we don't believe in karma. I'm just kidding. The point is, you're never going to pay it back. It is an insurmountable, inconceivable by way of accomplishing it, the payment back, it is impossible. And so what you see there, what I want you to recognize is what the first servant does. He says, hey, hey, please, please be merciful. Please be merciful to me. That's what he's paying for. And I will pay you everything, everything. How is a minimum wage worker going to pay back $6 billion? You can't. You can't. Hold that thought. Let's go to the next person who's in debt. He owes 100 denarii. Surprisingly, but in keeping with the parable that Jesus is telling, he owes, the second servant owes the first servant 100 denarii. Now, to be clear, 100 denarii is not like chump change. 100 denarii is basically like 100 days of work. It's like three months of pay. This is no small amount. This isn't like, hey, you owe your friend 20 bucks. Can you Venmo me now, please? No, I mean, this is like, we have to figure out something here. This is a significant amount of money, but it's small in comparison to $6 billion. It's unbelievably tiny. But notice the same posture. He also cries for mercy. He also pleads for patience. That's exactly what he's appealing to. He pleads with him. He says this in verse 29. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you. I can make this right. 
Now, who seemingly is more logical, the first or the second? The second. But what's so inconceivable, so unimaginable, is that the first one is forgiven. Now, here's the key. What I want you to recognize what happens with them, and I don't want you to miss it. He not only would be, the master would not only be in his right to put him in jail, but it says he released him, verse 27, and he forgave him the debt. See, see, the first servant was like, hey, if you let me out, I will spend my entire life paying you back. I will spend my entire life. You can garner all of my wages for the rest of my life. And the master says, not only are you free, you completely owe me nothing. Not a penny. It's wiped away. That, that, that's unbelievable. Friends, that is exactly the point Jesus is making here about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the debt you and I each have to God is so great, is so insurmountable, so immeasurable, we could do a thousand lifetimes of good works and never pay him back. Now, you might think, okay, that's hard to imagine because honestly, Eric, I know people who have done worse things than I have done and I feel like the why I have maybe not some done, like, you know, some, like I've done everything perfectly. I've not done everything horribly. So I feel like my debt to him is probably not as great as you're imagining it. Friend, that just tells me, I mean this quite politely to you, that just tells me you have a very low view, dare I say, inaccurate view of what sin actually is. Sin is an act of rebellion, holy treason against God. It's to go up to God who sits on the throne of all this world and say, I want you off that throne. I want to live on that throne. And everything I do is so that I will be recognized as God. I'll determine my life, my decisions. Your word will be closed to me. My conscience will be seared to you. I want only to do what I want to do. Any small or great act of that, any single violation of God's holiness is a representation of how holy he is and how much we've sinned against him. We would owe him a debt greater than any good work could ever repay. But the good news of Jesus Christ is for all of those who would believe in him, asking for his forgiveness, saying, I, have, I literally have nothing in my hands can I bring. I have nothing in my pockets that I can pay. I have not enough years on this life that I could live to do enough good works for you, God. I can plead nothing but to your mercy. And so I'm appealing to you based on how holy and awesome you are, loving and merciful, not because of how good I actually am. And God doesn't just release you. He forgives you all of your debt. I mean, if you want, we can like bust out a guitar and start singing right now. I mean, just like, come on. Come on. I mean, that is unbelievable. But here's where the story gets even more tragic and more unbelievable. Is that same servant who's been forgiven lifetimes worth of debt will not, it's not that he cannot, will not forgive the debt of another by comparison. 
That's the challenge that Jesus is putting in front of Peter and the disciples. That's the reality of what he is wanting to address with them. The servant's unwillingness to forgive even this amount, though having been forgiven of his own insurmountable debt, revealed the servant's true character. Verse 32, that he was wicked. You wicked servant. We can easily forget just how hard sin is to defeat in our own lives if we forget just how seriously Jesus calls us to take it. May I remind you of the context here? May I remind you? Go back, if you would, with me to verse 8. So you're in Matthew 18. We've been looking at, you know, verses 23 through 34. Go back to verse 8. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to your disciples, if your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's radical. Verse 9, if your eye cause you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter into life through, with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. What's Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about the reality of how hard sin is to deal with and how seriously we need to be taking it. The problem is, we're really good at taking everybody else's sin seriously and not so good at taking our own sin seriously, which is why it's so hard for us to forgive others because we're not so sure they have taken their sin as seriously as we've taken their sin. Until I feel like you've understood that, you've groveled in that, you've owned that, you really have a level of contrition about you, you have a sense of you're kind of paying me back the debt that I feel like you owe me with enough I'm sorry's or attaboys or kindness or other apologizing words or sort of self-deprecating acts, then I might issue my release of you. It speaks to how often we can forget how difficult sin is to deal with even in our own hearts. I believe more solidarity with the other sinner and the struggle to overcome sin will put us in a better state of understanding the willingness to forgive them of their sins. We understand how difficult it is in our own lives as well. So remember here what Jesus is calmly confronting and correcting throughout the teachings of Matthew. He is calmly confronting and correcting Pharisaic self-righteousness and contempt of others. This only but leads to unforgiveness and unmercifulness. We think about criminals and the different crimes they've committed. Some of us here know what that's like, know what it's like to have a rap sheet having been arrested for different crimes. I imagine there's nobody here that has a rap sheet as long as Milton Philip Edwards, who when his rap sheet was printed out, it was 30 feet, five inches long. From the amount of crimes he had committed, from larceny to trespassing to breaking out of jail, a total of 40 felonies and 34 misdemeanors. Many crimes with small punishments. But then there are other people whose criminal record is not long, it's just profound in how bad the single acts were. The United States and Spain, Thailand, and some other countries allow for consecutive prison sentences well beyond the life of any individual could live. For example, Terry Nichols was convicted of helping Timothy McVeigh carry out the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, where 168 people died, including 19 children. Although he tried to pull out of the attack at the last minute, he was found guilty, and he was sentenced, he was sentenced to 161 life sentences plus 9,300 years 
without parole. That's awfully long. The world's longest non-life sentence was imposed on a Thai woman who was a part of a pyramid scheme as a fraudster, Shamoy uh, Tapoiso, and she was sentenced for 141,078 years. What's craziest? After eight years, she was released. So this person went from 141,000 years, sentenced in prison, to having served eight and being done. Now imagine, Shamoy, if she was your friend, imagine how crazy it would be if you were going to get together for lunch and you're running late. And you show up, you know, Miami style, 30 minutes late, which is like on time for a lot of people. And she's not from Miami. She's not from here. She doesn't know the 305. She thinks that's horribly late. And she's like, where were you? I've been waiting for 30 minutes. How could you do this to me? How could you insult me like this? You're like, okay, just to be clear. You were once the recipient of a 141,000 year sentence in jail of what you wanted to do eight years, and you're upset about 30 minutes? I don't want to back it down, girl. Let's kind of dial it down and kind of get your perspective again. But the truth is, as much as we can maybe see the insanity of that, we need that same perspective in our own life. See, the word forgiveness, friends, means to let go. It means to give up. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Think of what Psalm 103, verses 1 to 3 says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Later on in verse 12, Psalm 1 and 3, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So here's the reality. Let's speak honestly. The context of this, if you'll notice again the language, verse 15, if your brother sins against you. And then Peter asks the question, how often my brother sins against me, shall I forgive? So it's in that context what Jesus is talking about. The context is this. Christians sinning against other Christians. I think that's sometimes where we experience the deepest hurt is in the context of Christian relationships. Because perhaps we have inordinate, unreasonable expectations of others After all, they profess to be Christian, and if they're going to be a Christian, they should act Christianly. I don't disagree with that. However, before we go too far in your assessment of others, can we ask you a basic question? Do you hold yourself to the same standard? Are you willing to consider in humility That the same thing that is true by temptation, if not by act of others, is true as well by temptation and act of your own. 
friends, the challenge comes in the context of the church where we see people who sin against each other. As a pastor, I see this very commonly. It's why some of you have left other churches because you have been sinned against by them. Now, I'm not saying that you should not have left. I don't know the situations unless I know them personally and, and specifically. It's why some of you are no longer friends with others who were once Christian friends of yours because of your inability or unwillingness perhaps to forgive them. It's why some people have left churches and some reasons why pastors leave churches themselves because of how people sin against each other. But friends, just consider with me the alternative. Just indulge me for a moment. What are your options? Unforgiveness? Unforgiveness will produce in you a root of bitterness that will grow a tree of unrighteousness that flowers with self-righteousness and impatience, cynicalness, doubt, judgmentalism. I don't think anybody here wants to live like that. Which takes us to the third lesson on forgiveness. We show others we have been forgiven by God by our forgiveness of others. Look at verse 35. Jesus continues in his final statement here, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is not making the forgiveness of your sins conditional of you forgiving others. Rather, Jesus is acknowledging here what he acknowledged earlier in Matthew chapter 6, which is your forgiveness of others is an outward display from you of what has already been done for you. I'll say that again. Your forgiveness of others is an outward display from you of what has already been done for you. Listen to how one writer said it, Thomas Watson, quote, we need not climb up into heaven to see whether our sins are forgiven. Let us look into our hearts and see if we can forgive others. If we can, we need not doubt, but God has forgiven us. Similarly, John Owen wrote, quote, Our forgiving of others will not procure forgiveness for ourselves, but our forgiving of others proves that we ourselves are not forgiven. So think about this with me. Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. For those of you who profess to be Christians here, I won't presume everybody here does, how would you, as a point of self-reflection, how would you rate, how would you assess yourself and how you're doing with forgiveness. Not conceptually. I trust probably everybody has largely agreed with what I've said. I'm talking practically. Now, let me just make one side note for clarification of what I'm not meaning to be heard to say here tonight. If criminal activity has taken place, 
You are not to subvert or bypass the role that God has chosen for the government. That is an appointed role that God has given to the government. Policing authorities who have the divine obligation and legal capacity to adjudicate such matters. A call to forgiveness does not derail legal proceedings in the case of laws being broken. I want to be very clear what I'm saying. When, when theft has been committed against you, I'm not saying you don't call the police. When sexual abuse has been committed by others to you, I'm not saying you don't call the police. That's not the same conversation we're having. We instead are talking about the relational debt that you are keeping another person into and how you orient yourself to them. I'm helped by Ken Sandy in his small book, Resolving Everyday Conflict. He writes the following, remember that forgiveness is not three things. Number one, it isn't a feeling, it isn't forgetting, and it isn't excusing. Friends, let me just be very clear so that you don't think I'm misrepresenting you emotionally or experientially, or I'm not trying to be sensitive to what you've experienced historically. I am saying forgiveness is not waiting until you feel like it. A lot of times, God's Word calls us to things where we'll have to act by faith, not by feeling, as being what God's will for us. Secondly, it isn't forgetting as if somehow you had like amnesia. You've forgotten any act against you. That's not at all what's being spoken about here. Or that it's excusing as if somehow you're minimizing the wrong done to you. That's no longer more more true than Jesus is minimizing your sin by forgiving you. He's not minimizing all. That's why He went to the cross. Ken Sandy writes, quote, forgiveness is a radical decision not to hold an offense against the offender. You can either take payments on the debt or you can make payments. You can take payments on a debt from others' sin in many ways. You might withhold forgiveness, dwell on a wrong, be cold and aloof, give up on the relationship inflict emotional pain or gossip, lash back or plot revenge against the one who hurt you, these actions might give you a moment of dark satisfaction. But in the long run, they demand a high price from you. As someone once said, unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping others will die. So friends, I want to be biblically clear and pastorally sensitive to many in this room who have gone through some disappointing, to put it mildly, and destructive, to put it more accurately, decisions others have made against you. Forgiveness doesn't even obligate you to the continuation of that relationship per se, depending on what it is and with whom it was. Forgiveness is more an expression of how you will hold this act against you and how you will view that person if to see them again, be with them again, interact with them again, and whether or not you can see them with a clean conscience or want to turn and go the other direction. Forgiveness is not easy. It is costly. No person knows that better than God Himself. 
to forgive you and to forgive me of our sins would take nothing less than the crucifixion of the Son of God. Where Jesus would lay down His life Healing even in the final hour in John 17. Father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, but your will be done. And the Father never answered that prayer. Because he didn't let the cup pass. The wrath of God that we deserve was poured out on his Son. Nobody understands better the costly price of forgiveness than God does. And it's that reminder to you and I that allows us to come to God in prayer and say, God, help me forgive my brother. Help me forgive my sister. We think about Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. As we end tonight, let me ask you, who comes to mind right now that you need to forgive? Why will you go another day while you let another night pass without forgiving them. For those of you who do not have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, I want you to recognize the reality that God's offer for forgiveness is right here in front of you tonight. Promises to forgive. Repenting of your sins, putting your trust in Him, He will forgive you. There is no amount of debt you could have done, no crime you could have committed, no sin compoundingly over and over with interest you could actually accrue against him that he won't completely wipe away. Adopt you, call you his beloved son, promise you eternal life and give you peace everlasting. The question is, will you refuse to have that debt removed or not? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.